0: Be seated church. What a joy. How good our God is to us. Amen? Amen. Listen, before we get into it today, I want to take a minute and do something kind of cool. Um if you've been a part of Emmanuel for a while, you probably know this, but a chunk of our giving, 10% of our giving as a church, goes to support missional partners, various church plants, pastors, ministries, nonprofits. We believe firmly that if we uh, as a church are going to call God's people to radical generosity with their finances, that the church itself should be living in radical generosity with their finances, right? And and we also know, if you've been here, right, Emmanuel was birthed as two other churches, Red Tree Church and West County Bible Church kind of merged together and replanted as one new church. And each of those church families brought old, like established, passionate missional partnerships and relationships with them. And that kind of makes up who our missional partners are, but that creates this weird space, right? Where like a chunk of us know about this and a chunk of us know about this. And so we want to be intentional in the coming weeks and months to make sure we introduce you all to all the different partners we have that we serve financially, that we pray for, that we care for. And so, uh, so that we can all be on the same page in terms of just being excited about what God's doing in our community and in the world. And so we get to do that today. I'm going to introduce you guys to David Baterka. if you want to come up here. David is the director of Win the Saints Ministries. This is a nonprofit that Emmanuel supports in Malawi. He's going to tell us who he is, a little bit about the ministry, and share some updates with us. You guys have probably heard this, but we're actually today at 4 p.m. in this space uh, screening a documentary called Win the Saints about the history of this ministry and just the amazing, cool things they do. Uh, I'm going to let David share just a little bit who he is, those things, and then we're going to pray over him before we jump into our sermon time. Sound good?
1: Awesome thanks for being here David. Absolutely. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, David. <laughs> <laughs> it's a huge honor uh, to be with you all. It's a huge honor to be partnering, you know, between When the Saints and Emmanuel uh, Fellowship Church. And uh, before I jump in to sharing anything, I wanted to, to start with a Bible verse. And uh, so it's just been a verse that's been heavily on my heart for a couple months. It's from Revelation chapter 4, verse 10. And uh, to me, it depicts what I believe will happen uh, when Jesus comes back again and those who call on his name to be their savior will find themselves at his throne. And it just talks about how this group of people will take the crowns off of their heads and they'll cast them at his feet and they'll say, you alone are worthy of all of the praise and all of the glory, all of the honor. And, uh, you know, I just see this being the earthly accomplishments uh, from our life. You know, the crowns that we receive, these rewards in heaven, the crowns will be, you know, falling into this category. Uh, It's not for the sake of being able to, you know, flaunt in heaven all the amazing things that we accomplished on earth. Uh, But the whole goal, you know, to me is that we get to take those things off of our heads, take these crowns off. And throw them at the feet of Jesus and say, all of it was for your glory. All of it was for your name. And you are the one who's worthy to receive all of that glory. So that's, uh, you know, uh, a big heart of Win the Saints that we've been established is to point all of the glory back to his name. And I believe that the Lord has led us, you know, into a partnership together because he knew that it would result in his name getting more glory and the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. (laughs) So. Yeah, so it's uh, just really exciting, you know, to see all your faces and uh, the things that, you know, with your help, we're able to accomplish. I wish you could see it uh, on the ground, you know, in Malawi. If you guys ever want to come over, let me know. We love having visitors. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, my wife and I, we spend about nine months a year in Malawi, and and we're back in the States, uh, usually about three months a year. So we've been here two months. We're leaving May 4th. Um, she woke up uh, very nauseous. She is uh, pregnant with our second baby. <laughs> yeah, so we have a 19-month-old. Uh, his name is Taji, which means crown in Swahili. My wife is from Kenya, and we met in Malawi. The language of Malawi is Chichewa, but we call it our son Crown. Um, and uh, So yeah, we're looking forward to, to having a little, another little one. Um, but I would love to just kind of briefly uh, summarize you know, the three main things that, that Win the Saints does. Of course, you know like Sam said, you'll, if you, you know, want to see the documentary, you'll see a bit more of the details of how it got started, how the Lord gave us uh, this call uh, for what we are doing. But we started in two thousand eleven as a nonprofit, um, and we first just started showing the passion of the Christ in villages, village by village. Uh, in Malawi, to uh, proclaim the gospel, and we, you know, preach, uh, invite people out for prayer if they would like individual prayer. Uh, there's usually three, four, or five hundred people uh, per village when we do this, and there are just thousands of villages. Eighty-five percent of the 19 million people in Malawi are uh, rural, in villages, and uh, so uh, that's yeah, just been incredible. You know, we just believe that if we really want to see any form of injustice in any society, any culture, anywhere in the world. Uh, be eradicated, the best way to do that is is to proclaim the gospel because when his kingdom comes to earth and his culture, the culture of the kingdom of heaven comes into our hearts, it does two amazing things: it, it eradicates these detrimental attributes uh, of sin and idols in our heart that that show themselves and manifest themselves in different ways in culture, but it also does a, a really beautiful thing uh, uh, you know it exemplifies. Beautiful attributes uh, of culture and us the way that we've been created to you know show the world um, being created in his image you know show the world who Jesus is um, and so we then started moving toward fundraising for um, building the first and only long-term trauma counseling safe home in the country of Malawi and um, <clears throat> We were appointed um, to the, you know, the city that had the highest ratings of gender-based violence in the whole country. We met the senior chief of this city, and uh, he said, "In no way am I proud that I sit over this city that has this reputation of people would refer to Mponela, where we are, as the armpit of Malawi, uh, because of this reputation of these these grown men abusing these young girls." And so um, he gifted, you know, called together 62 uh, other influential people in the city, and they gifted us 12 acres worth of land, where we now have, in 2015, we were able to complete uh, the first and only long-term trauma counseling safe home. We've had uh, a total of 212 girls come into our year-long program. Yeah, we currently have 48 girls that are in the program right now. And uh, so we just opened dorm number three uh, about halfway through last year. We were able to go from a maximum capacity of 36 up to 54. Each dorm house can house 18 girls. We're currently building dorm number four, and uh, we hope to have it done in you know a matter of maybe four or five months so that we can even raise our maximum capacity up to 72 girls. Um, there are actually... You know, all the cases of what's called defilement, girls who are 16 years old and younger, Uh, we've had a couple three-year-olds come into our program, they all get referred to us from the Victim Support Unit branch of the police in our city. And um, we just, 95% of all the cases come to us from the one Victim Support Unit in our community. There are actually a total of seven Victim Support Units within about a full 50-minute drive of the safe home in, in different directions. All these other six that we don't partner with have all come to us and pleaded with us uh, to see if there's any way that they could start referring their cases of defilement in their communities to our safe home as well. But we've had to tell them at this point, we just don't have the capacity to be able to handle um, the vastness of these uh, abuse cases. And so, yeah, we're just trusting the Lord to continue, you know. expanding our territory so that we can have more uh, dorm houses and, and start partnering with more of the victim support units. We have seen him uh, move uh, very significantly in, in the matter of the last couple years. Since we started in 2011, we all just, always just kind of you know hovered for about nine years. All of a sudden, in the last um, two years, we've just seen exponential growth. We've almost tripled in, in size. We have 54 Malawian staff members <laughs> in Malawi now. Um, and, uh, so yeah, we really just believe in empowering, you know, Malawians. We believe that they are uh, more capable, uh, understanding the language and the culture uh, and the challenges that they face and have grown up facing than someone halfway around the world that's going to come into that culture. And we don't want to be seen as just kind of this American led type of organization. And so we see it more as coming alongside of, of them and empowering them and giving them the resources to be able to, you know, adjust, uh, address, these These issues. And um, so then, pretty quickly, when we were seeing girls come out of situations of abuse, it uh, led us, you know, we believe through the power of the Holy Spirit to understand that um, by bringing girls out of these abusive situations, we could actually be creating a void, uh, especially in something like a brothel, where the same number of men in the community would continue to come um, to that place. And indirectly through the success of helping all of these girls be freed from that, uh, there would actually be traffickers that would just go into villages and bring girls who wouldn't have otherwise been abused, you know, to to recruit them into filling the void that we created. Um, And so um, the Holy Spirit just helped us understand that the only true sustainable way of seeing a reduction in cases of abuse has to involve seeing the hearts of men be transformed by the gospel of Jesus. And so... In uh, the past three and a half years, we've slowly been starting more and more uh, men's groups. So we're up to having seven weekly groups with men, anywhere from 15 men to, uh, one of our groups has 80 plus men that come weekly uh, to study scripture, you know, understand what God um, has called them to as, as men, to be men, uh, husbands and fathers that honor and dignify and, and treat you know, women and girls with, with dignity and respect. Yeah, and so that's, um, amen. So, um, yeah, that's uh, just been incredible. We also launched a school in January. A lot of the girls were attending schools uh, in, our, in our, you know, the city that we were in, about an hour north of the capital city, which is called Lelongwe. Uh, we're in the city called Mponela. And um, they were just facing a lot of bullying. When a girl is abused uh, in Malawi, typically, in the eyes of society, they lose a lot of their social value. And they're seen just as, you know, kind of trash that all they're good for is just to continually be abused. Um, And so it was uh, just hindering, you know, their growth toward healing quite a bit. And so uh, we started moving toward um, building a school. So we launched in January we bought a separate plot of land about 300 yards from where our safe home is. And just in December, we've actually been working on, and we just finished about two weeks ago, like negotiating it the four plots of land in between where the safe home is and the school site. So, yeah, so we, we just finalized the purchase of, uh, from, from start to finish, our property is a thousand yards long. It's a one kilometer long in the measurements of Malawi. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, again, we've just seen uh, an amazing amount of growth and it's been such an honor um, to see you know firsthand and uh, again, such an honor to have you guys partnering with us. And even though it's uh, half a world away, uh, we do want you to know that you're so important, you're so valuable to us. And uh, I'd love to just share one last thing because um, you know, not only is a partnership in terms of finances, uh, helpful, but we really value prayer support. Uh, to know that people are praying over our work um, it just means a lot. And we face challenges. Uh, we just recently faced uh, a pretty serious challenge. My wife and I, who are one of the girls in our program, um, we believe that it, it may have been as a result of the abuse that she faced, but she was just dealing with uh, some very heavy demonic uh, forces in her life and every couple weeks she would do things that she wouldn't remember and she would say things that she wouldn't remember she would accuse people of things and uh, attack people and so when she came into our safe home a couple weeks after she came in she um, went to the police and reported it, they they had just gone home on holiday like three weeks after she came in so while she was home in her village she reported our head trauma counselor and a couple other staff members uh, said that they were physically beating her uh, after she had come into the safe home and so they did an investigation and they the mom you know showed up and said no no, no this this has been happening every couple of weeks she just uh you know accuses people of stuff and and uh, so then after, you know, kind of this investigation, they, they realized that uh, it hadn't actually been happening. Um, and then again, a couple of weeks later, the next thing that um, she started doing, she took a knife from the kitchen and uh, started trying to convince three, girl, three other girls in the safe home that they needed to, to stab my son, my year-and-a-half-year-old son, uh, to death and sacrifice him and, and cut his head off. And uh, so for a couple of days, it was just very scary for us. I didn't know if I you know, Taji gets passed around uh, all day. My wife and I, you know, have an office together. And um, so we have 48 babysitters, you know, throughout the day <laughs> with all the girls they fight over carrying him, you know. <laughs> and uh, But it was just scary. I didn't know if I would hear my son, you know, screaming and find him in a pool of his own blood. Um, and so we were trying to figure out how to handle the situation. My reaction was we got to kick this girl out of our program as soon as possible. Um, but after kind of hearing what was happening, uh, we decided to uh, instead call what we called a revival night, and we, uh, you know, preached and we had a time of prayer and worship, and uh, just invited girls up if they wanted individual prayer. And this girl was the first one to get up because you know she was being told, "Did you, you know you said this and you, you had a knife?" And she, she's just like she felt so horrible about it because she was just like, "I don't even remember." And so she came up. She just said, "I don't want this to happen to me anymore." And so. Our, uh, our head house mother and one of our trauma counselors and I, we um, pulled these girls individually, one, one by one, for about 10 minutes and prayed over all eight of the girls that came up for prayer. And so this girl was the first one. She got down on her knees, and as we were praying about halfway through the prayer, uh, she arched her back and started making this horrible noise with her mouth, just like a... <laughs> and then this, this white, vomity, foamy stuff just shot down the front of her dress and she fell over, and uh, we believe that she experienced a supernatural deliverance uh, you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. And uh, it's been months. It's been you know, around three months, and she hasn't had any episode like that since then. Woo! So if you happen to uh, get the paper... We just had today in the Post-Dispatch, uh, we had a big thing done on Win the Saints, so go ahead and grab that. I'm going to go to Deerberg's and get one after this.
0: <laughs> I want to take a second before we jump into it and pray over you, David. Thank you so much for spending time with us today, man. You are such a gift. We love you guys. Church, join with me in prayer. Lord, we want to thank you so much for the Paterka family, Lord. We thank you for David and for Essie and Taji and this, this baby you're bringing to grow this family, Lord. Yeah, we want to pray very specifically just your protection over this family, that you would grow their marriage and unity, that you would um, lock them arm in arm around this thing you've called them to, that you would put your peace, your joy, supernaturally with their kiddos. Um, And, Lord, we just pray that you would give them perseverance, them and all the staff people as they seek to do this work that is... So vital, so, so, such, a, such a beautiful, such an obvious part of your kingdom work to, to love the least of these and to fight the effects of the curse in this world and to see people move from uh, death to life, from lostness to salvation. Lord, we pray your blessing. We pray your presence. We pray your joy. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to advance your kingdom in Malawi. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for these things. So we pray them in your name. Amen. I love you, dude. Listen. If you don't know David, please grab him before you leave today. Shake his hand. Say hi. There's so many ways you can get to know about this. If you're a social media person, look up uh, Win the Saints on, on Facebook or those sorts of things. David does an amazing job, David and Essie, of keeping those things up to date, putting updates in there. They do little micro-fundraising things for specific projects, day-to-day and week-to-week. It's, it's something you can really be a part of and stay connected to. And so we would encourage you guys... To reach out. If you are at all able to come today at four o'clock and hang out uh, and do the film screening, I would love for you guys to be a part of that. <sighs> Man, Woo! that's exciting, huh? I, uh, I, feel, I feel a little ill-prepared to move from that to the sermon because I feel like that was the sermon, but let's do it. We're going to be in John chapter 12 today. If you guys want to go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 12, welcome to Holy Week. If you uh, are someone who is not from a church tradition where maybe that language is normative to you, uh, welcome. I'm glad you're here, glad you're worshiping with us here at Emmanuel. Um, you know, as good Protestants... Uh, Most Protestants have pretty much rejected the entire church calendar, except for like Christmas and Easter. And there's some theological reasons for that that that, that are probably good. But, But I do think there are aspects of that part of church history that's actually really helpful for us and really grounds us in who Christ is and the proclamation of the gospel. And so I'm joyful to call this Holy Week and to invite us to spend this week reflecting, praying, preparing our hearts, to celebrate the beautiful reality of the resurrection in the gospel of Jesus. It's such an amazing thing that we get to celebrate. And so I think uh, the stuff we do in Holy Week, Palm Sunday and Good Friday, and those sorts of things can really help kind of get our hearts ready for that celebration. So I would encourage you guys, if this is a new thing to you, to just kind of do it. You know, go online, find a Holy Week devotion to read over this week. We're going to be looking uh, at the Passion Week through the lens of the Gospel of John. So grab John and dig through that this week in your personal devotional time. Um, But anyway, as we jump into this, I I want to give you guys a quick kind of reflective question. I want you to think through this question in your head, hold it in the back of your mind as kind of an interpretive lens for as we walk through this text today. And it's simply this, how do you understand winning what is victory in your mind some of you if you're my age like immediately heard like a rap song going like all i do is win but 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 i want you to i want you to ask that question in your head what is winning what is victory right what 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 kind of things do you associate with that glory power strength of being victorious because one of the other names for Palm Sunday is Victory Sunday, right? This is, this is the day where we, where we kind of step in and look at the story of what's called the triumphal entry or the victorious entry, when Christ enters into Jerusalem for the last time before his death. And it's, you know, if you grew up in church, like, this is like the famous story, right? He gets in the donkey and people have the palm fronds and they wave them. Like, I have, like, memories of childhood of them handing out actual palm fronds to the kids, you know, which what we would do is, like, rip all the leaves off and then whip each other with them. But, which is not the point of the story, but that is what four brothers figure out how to do at church. Uh, but this, this victory story, right? Like this is kind of the essence of what's going on here. And, and what's interesting about it, and what, what I think is going to be helpful for us today or push us to what God has for us today, is that there really is something unique about the story of the triumphal entry in that it's the only time during, earth, during Jesus' earthly ministry where the people around him Treat him accurately, right? The triumphal entry is the only time during Jesus' earthly ministry when he's actually treated like a king, like the Messiah. They actually glorify him and worship him and honor him as Messiah, as king. But what's beautiful about this, and what's I think going to be challenging for us today, is that Jesus' response is to basically just kind of push it away. He actually kind of shuns this glory given to him as Messiah as he enters into the city, which is really interesting. But I think it's going to be helpful for us today because I think what we're going to see is that when Christ receives this earthly glory, his response is to just kind of dump it on its head and say, I'm not not looking for earthly glory. I'm not here for that. I'm actually here for for a kingdom of God purpose. I'm actually here for eternal glory. I'm actually here to suffer and die and and to give myself for my children. And what we see is that for Christ, his glory is actually in his death. And his victory is in his sacrifice, which I think is going to be just good. us as his followers to consider today so let's read this text and then we'll jump into it john chapter 12 starting in verse 12 we read this the next day when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that jesus was coming to jerusalem they took palm branches and went out to meet him they kept shouting hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord the king of israel Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it, was, as it was written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd, which had been there when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. This also was why the crowd met him, because they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival, so they came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But this is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, This voice came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Then the crowd replied to him, We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus answered, The light will be with you only a little while longer walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become children of light. Jesus said this, and then went away and hid from them. In this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father God, we ask this morning as we take a few minutes to be in your word that you would be our disciples. Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate the text, that you would do your ministry to our hearts, that you would illuminate and remind us of things we've forgotten in our faith, that you would teach us new things about Christ, that you would convict us of our sin, and that ultimately, Father, that that we would hear from you today, that we would meet with you in the way our hearts need. that We would leave this place having been encouraged, challenged, connected to you. We love you, Jesus. We trust you for these things, and we are eager for them. So we pray Him in your name. Amen. So here's what I'd like to do with this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of put us within the context of the Gospel of John. I'm going to nerd out a little bit on just kind of Bible genre and history and context because I think that will help kind of clarify this story for us. Then we're going to walk back through this specific story in that context. I'll point out just a couple cultural, historical things that I think will really help clarify it. But ultimately, we're going to land on this truth I've already said, this this, this beautiful image that, that our Jesus, our sweet Jesus, shuns the glory, of this world that he might bathe in the glory of eternity right that he is not about the comforts and victories of this world but he is about the victory of eternity of heaven of winning you and I unto him through his sacrifice we'll end our time reflecting on what that means for us as his followers as his servants we'll look at a quick passage from Jesus and Mark and we'll end with a note from Paul in his letter to the Philippians sound good? awesome so We're in the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. These are the first four books of the New Testament. We call these the Gospels because each of these four books basically tells the same story. They tell the story of Jesus' life and ministry and teaching. And if you're like me and you read through these books, it's pretty easy to just kind of read them as these awkward and kind of short biographies of Jesus' life. And they kind of do that, right? Like they, They let us know about his story and those things. But it's actually, and this is where I'm going to nerd out for just a second, it's actually important to kind of put these in their proper literary genre, which is to say they're not biographies in the modern sense. They're a thing that ancient historians call a bios, which is kind of the great-great-grandfather of what we call a biography. And they're similar enough that most of the time the difference doesn't really matter. But when you get into the Gospel of John, the difference becomes a little more apparent. And it's simply this a biography the way we think of it that modern genre is basically a personal history right if you go and pick up your biography of whoever George Washington or Sam Walton or whatever biography you're reading you expect that to be an accurate telling of a person's individual history and then maybe some context for their place in the world during their time right and that's kind of what we're looking at a bios's goal is less about telling you a history, and more about inviting you into the heart and soul of an individual. A bios is about preserving kind of the essence of the person being written about, their philosophy, their worldview, their teaching. And you see that in the Gospels in the way they're different from modern biographies. All four Gospels spend almost zero time on the majority of Jesus's life, Right? Between the four Gospels, we have like two and a half chapters worth of content describing his life from birth to age 30, right? And then about half of all four Gospels are spent telling about the last five days Jesus spent on earth, his Passion Week, right? They're not concerned with giving you this really filled out history of Jesus. What they're concerned about is making sure you know who Jesus is, what his message is, what his essence is. Which again, most of the time, that doesn't really matter. But it matters when you're talking about John, because when your purpose is making sure you encapsulate the essence of the person, and not giving a personal history, the chronological aspect of the story matters a little less. And John actually purposefully kind of tells Jesus' life out of order chronologically. You know, and there's a couple of reasons for that. John was the last of the four gospels written, written by the apostle John later in his life when he was being when he'd been exiled to the island of Patmos, and he understood at that point that the majority of the church already had access to at least Matthew and Mark, probably Luke also. The story of Jesus told really like like individually, really detailed centric was already there and the church had access to it. And his concern was significantly more theological about putting the teaching, the ministry of Jesus in an apologetic and evangelistic theological context. He actually says that really bluntly. I am writing this so that you will believe Jesus is the Messiah. And the result is that he structures his telling of Jesus' stories in a theological lens before he puts them in a historic lens, which for us as modern readers, to be honest, is just confusing. <laughs> but it actually creates this really beautiful picture of who Christ is, what his ministry was, especially when you put it alongside the other three Gospels that tell the story from kind of a little different lens, right? So essentially, John is structured like this. John 1 through 12 tell the story of Jesus' signs. John zones in on seven specific miracles that Jesus performs, and he calls them the signs. These aren't just miracles. These are signs pointing to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. And the way he does that is by putting these miracles very specifically within the context of the Jewish worldview. And this is, by the way, we, we don't have time for this today, but it's well worth your time to like buy a good commentary on John and dig through this first chunk and see this piece, these pieces that we can kind of easily miss. As modern readers, but but each of Jesus' seven signs in the first half of John, each one is put within the context of some specific aspect of the Jewish worldview, the Jewish worship calendar, the Jewish festival calendar, and Jesus' miracle and subsequent teaching speaks into that specific aspect of the Jewish worldview. So Jesus does things in John like turn water into wine and walk on water and feed the 5,000. And each one of these signs is followed by a teaching of Jesus where he speaks specifically into the Jewish worldview and makes a personal declaration about himself. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true gate. I am the shepherd. He, he has these statements connected to these signs and each one is just building Like, piece by piece by piece, this apologetic, evangelistic appeal to the nation of Israel to say, look at Jesus with sober eyes. He is the Messiah you've been waiting for. It's beautiful. And we miss a good chunk of it just because we don't know a lot of that stuff. But it culminates in John 11 with the final sign where Jesus resurrects his buddy Lazarus. Now, at this point in the story, the tension has grown so much, he does these radical signs, makes these radical claims. Some people believe him, say, yes, he's the Messiah. Most of the people go, no, this guy's crazy, and he's a heretic, and he's dangerous. That By the time John 11 rolls around, Jesus isn't really welcome in Jerusalem anymore. That is a dangerous place for him to go. But he gets word that his buddy Lazarus, who basically lives in the suburbs of Jerusalem, is sick and dying. And he delays going there. He kind of has this back and forth about whether or not he should go see him. And he doesn't go to see him until after Lazarus dies. And and by the way, when when we hear this story taught in our context most of the time, there's this really big emphasis and focus, as there should be, on this whole idea of Jesus' friendship with Lazarus and the delay and how that affected him emotionally. And that's a beautiful, true part of that story. But an interesting part that I often overlook is the fact that Part of the reason he wasn't going is because if he went there, he would probably die. In fact, when he finally says, hey, we're gonna go, his disciples kind of get together and they're like, hey, if he goes there, they'll kill him. We should all go, right? Like, if he's gonna die, he shouldn't die alone, we should die with him. And they all kind of like, yeah, let's do it, and they rally and go with him. That's like how intense the situation is at this point. He makes it there, if you're familiar with the story. His friend is already dead. He weeps for him. He meets with his family. He's in mourning. But the story culminates in Jesus Christ walking to the tomb of Lazarus and with nothing more than his voice. Jesus, in his divine authority, kills Lazarus' death. He commands him to come forth from the tomb with nothing more than his voice. And a multi-day, rotting, dead body begins to breathe again and the heart begins to beat again. And Lazarus stands up and takes off his grave clothes and walks out of the tomb alive. Woo! It's intense. It's powerful. You can imagine like the moment where everyone's standing there going, did I just see what I thought I saw? And it blows everything up. The people who saw it are like, I'm all in. This guy's Messiah. Like, that was like stinky, rotten, gross, dead body, and now he's hanging out, having parties. I don't know what this guy's deal is, but I'm here for it. And people who weren't there, the religious leaders in Jerusalem were like, we've got to be done with this guy. This is it. We're going to kill him. And they go, you know, we should kill Lazarus too, just like for good measure. Which, by the way, this is like a little bit of a side note, is a really terrible plan. Because Lazarus was already dead and that didn't work really well. And if your response to the the guy who can raise people from the dead is, we should kill him. So you just haven't really thought about about this through all the way, right? Like that's obviously not that great of a hindrance to him. But that's their plan. And and what we actually see at this point is that the wheels are already in motion. When Jesus resurrects Lazarus, he kind of seals his fate. The, the, The religious leaders in Jerusalem are going to kill him. It's now a matter of when. In that context, We get to our text with all the people rejoicing, all the people saying, this guy's the Messiah, I'm all in. And all the religious leaders going, this guy's a dangerous heretic, let's kill him. Then Jesus goes, okay, let's go to Jerusalem. And so we go to Jerusalem and we know this story. He gets on a donkey, he rides in. The people are, are, are worked up into this fever pitch, right? They, they go and they gather palm fronds and they take off their outer cloaks and they lay out this path for him as he's crossing into the city and they're shouting praises to him. Hosanna, Hosanna on the highest, which is this phrase that literally means like, save us now, save quickly. And it, it was the shorthand in that day for just messianic fervor. Messiah, come, Messiah, do your work. Messiah, Free us. And this piece is so important. so important for us to lock into this. Because this is exactly what the people of God wanted at this point. They were desperate for a Messiah. They are generations, generations into bondage and defeat. The nation of Israel does not exist at this point. They are subjects of a pagan power that mistreats and abuses them. The nation of Israel has been gone for generations. One people conquered them and someone conquered them and someone conquered them and someone conquered them. And by the time we get to this story, there's not a person alive who remembers when Israel was God's free people, a city on a hill, a light shining to the world, proclaiming this is what Yahweh does for those he loves. All they've known is oppression. Is a 90% tax rate. It's starvation. It's trying to claim that they are God's set-aside beloved people and yet living near starvation in survival substance farms. right? This is the reality, and they are desperate for a Messiah. Because they look back in their history. By the way, Messiah is this word that literally just means anointed one. It's the leader that God has chosen and set apart for his work. They look back over their history and they see men like Moses and Joshua who were anointed by the Spirit and called to free his people from slavery. And they they go back and they read books like Judges and they read about Gideon and Ehud and these anointed men who, through the power of the Spirit, freed God's people from oppression. And they go back and they read about men like David and Hezekiah who were anointed by God and they raised up an army and freed God's people from oppression. And so they're saying, Lord, send us another Messiah, please. We get it. We've read the prophets. It was our sin. We broke covenant. That's why you destroyed our nation. But, but we're 400 years into this and we're doing our best to walk in repentance. We, we're doing our best to follow the laws. Please, Lord, forgive that and establish us again. Send us a Messiah. Send us another David. Send us another Hezekiah who will raise up his sword, who will walk in holiness, who will draw your people back to you, back to worshiping you, back to the covenant, and then will overthrow our oppressors so we can be a people again, so we can have freedom again, so the world can look on Israel again and see that God is who he says he is. This is what they're looking for. When they shout, Hosanna, the King of Israel. All of this is built into that. As they they usher Jesus into Jerusalem, they're saying, "We, we believe the Messiah is here. It's time. We've seen what you can do. We know God has anointed you, so just draw your sword, and we're in it with you, Jesus. But that's not what Jesus is actually here for. And so... Jesus, receiving this glory, entering into the city. You know, the the other three Gospels, they kind of move past this scene Jesus enters in, and they kind of move on to his interactions in the temple. But John lingers here and gives us this interaction between Jesus and his followers in the crowd where he basically just goes, I'm just not about this. (laughs) I'm not here for this. I'm not into it. And he gives us this parable It's so interesting. He gives us this parable where where he says, you know, unless a grain falls to the ground and dies, it doesn't produce any fruit. And that's kind of my deal. (laughs) That's what I'm here for. He brings it back to just going, I know you're looking for a guy to come and overthrow Rome. Because here's the thing, guys. This is not the first Messiah, quote-unquote, to be ushered into Jerusalem with shouts of praise. In the last couple of years, at this point, Israel is ready for a Messiah. They're looking for a Messiah, and many people have claimed that title and have sought to build up armed uprisings against Rome. And what happens each and every time is Rome shows up and brutally, publicly murders them. And so they're looking at Jesus going, this guy literally can't die, so maybe he'll do better. This has got to be it. And Jesus' response is, actually, my plan is to be brutally, publicly murdered by Rome. That's actually where this thing is going. A seed has to die in order for the plant to grow and bear fruit. It's such an interesting analogy, Right? It's an interesting parable because if you think about it, like, none of us are farmers, but I think we all like, sat through that class where we had to put the bean in the cup, you know, and, like, let it grow. Like, we know this piece of how it works, right? It's not like a seed dies, it's just like a different form of the plant, right? But there's something so important about that. There's something so important about that. What Jesus is pointing to here is this world, this life, this glory, this stuff. This is not what I'm here for. This all has to die in order for my actual thing to happen. The seed doesn't die in a literal sense, but that form of the plant does die. It goes away. So the roots can grow out and the thing can sprout out of the ground. It can bear tons and tons of fruit. And so Jesus looks at his life, which by the way, Jesus lived in his context a wonderful life had friends we hung out with he got to travel he got to preach god's word he got to engage in the beautiful creation he got to worship the lord right he had in the context within which he was like he had a beautiful life but he essentially says i'm not here for this i didn't come to earth to hang out with my friends and eat good food and see beautiful landscapes and preach i came to earth to suffer and die to drink the full cup of the wrath of God that sin might be expunged, that the curse might be killed, that death might be no more and that my children may come to me in righteousness and holiness and perfection forever. Jesus takes this earthly glory that's given to him and he just kind of pushes it off. He says, that's just not, it's not my thing. And praise be to God but that's not his thing. What an amazing gospel, amen, that that, that Jesus had such a cosmic perspective on his ministry. That he wasn't there to establish Israel over and above Rome, but he was there to establish you and I as holy and righteous before God. that that, that his perspective was so much bigger than that moment and that space and that life and and those friends and those connections. His his, his perspective was eternal. That all of God's children might be called away from the curse, away from death, away from suffering, away from sin, away from what we have brought upon ourselves and to our Creator God. That was his perspective. I'm not here for this. I'm here for something bigger. And then he he does this. I mean, that's an amazing gospel, right? That's a gospel we can get behind and celebrate, amen? We could end right there and just all say amen and leave and be stoked. But Jesus isn't content with that either. (laughs) He actually pushes it a little farther and goes, and by the way, (laughs) this is what my servants do too. If you're my servant, you'll be where I am. You'll do what I do. And then he, he adds on to it and goes, I mean, if anyone loves their life in this world, they won't be able to keep it. They'll lose it. But if they hate their life in this world, they'll, they'll be able to have it for eternity. That's a weird turn of phrase. And I think it's a weird turn of phrase because it hits on maybe a cultural piece that that we impose in that that isn't supposed to be there, right? Like when Jesus says, he who hates his life, he's not talking about the kind of like mental illness, sorrow, depression, maybe even like suicidal ideation that we might connect with the phrase like hating your life. This is actually a pretty common figure, a hyperbolic figure of speech used by rabbis at this time, where essentially he's just saying, if you value this life over eternity, it's not gonna work. It's not gonna work. You have to value eternal life over this present world. You have to value the bigger picture. You have to value forever, over and above, right here and right now. Because, beloved, at the end of the day, the glory of Christ is not a bunch of people with palm branches. It's his death. It's his accomplished mission on our behalf. At the end of the day, the victory of Christ was not the emperor defeated and Jesus, you know, putting his sandal over him and like holding up a sword. The victory of Christ is his sacrifice. It's his suffering. It's his loss on our behalf. At the end of the day, the ministry of Jesus is cross now, crown later. Suffering, sacrifice, humble, quiet, background, others first, now. Glory, good, blessing, later. Cross now, crown later. This is the the ministry, the way of Jesus. And then he goes on to say, and this is what my followers do. Now that can be confusing because the reality is you don't do what Jesus does. (laughs) Right, like you don't die for the sins of the world and drink the wrath of God so that others might be made righteous you can't do that, sorry uh, actually not sorry That's, you don't want to try and do that you want, we don't do that Christ does that he did it once, he accomplished it the work is done, death is defeated in him we have life, we have victory, amen but we are like Christ his servants are like him they do what, go where he goes in the sense that those who follow Christ must, must Move their perspective, shift their perspective to an eternal perspective. Those who are servants of Christ must, like Christ did, shun the glories, the strength, the victory of this world for the glories, the victory, the strength of the eternal kingdom of God. This is what it means to follow after Christ, to be a part of his kingdom, to be his servant, to be where he is, means, in part, Do you have the same perspective that seeks cross now and crown later? that, That joyfully chooses, joyfully chooses the life of quiet, other centered, selfless, sacrificial, painful, serving love. That is the life of the kingdom of God. Think about what you associate with victory, with glory. Think about the things that we would mark in our world as strength. Think about the comforts, the successes. Maybe it's health, maybe it's career, maybe it's family, maybe it's whatever, a good retirement. These are the kinds of things our world tells us to associate with winning. Maybe it's national identity, where our culture sits in in comparison to the other nations and cultures in our world. But the reality is our Jesus shunned the glories of this earth and chose the glories of eternity. He shunned the victories, the strengths of this world and chose the victory and strength of eternity and we beloved of Jesus get the privilege of doing the same. In Mark chapter 10 verse 45, one of my Favorite chapters in Scripture, Jesus walks in on his disciples arguing over who will have the most power and authority in the kingdom of God, which is a little backwards because the kingdom of God is upside down. It doesn't work that way. And Jesus' response to them is amazing. He says, You know, those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you will be the slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Beloved of Jesus, you get to be like your sweet Jesus. You get the privilege. A seed has to die if it's going to bear fruit. In a text like today, there's kind of two places we could and should go. You know, we essentially have this, this, this grace piece and this, this Christian ethical piece. And, and I think depending on where your heart's at today, there's probably a different emphasis you need to sit with with Christ today. So I want to make sure I highlight both of them as we kind of lay in this thing and reflect on it. You know, the grace piece is simply this. What a God we serve. What an amazing Jesus who, who chooses cross that the crown might be later, that, that, that chose suffering, that shunned the glories of this world for our sake, that, that, that we, sinful, selfish us, might receive his glory, his righteousness, and live in eternal perfection with him. What an amazing, loving, sacrificial, other first God we serve. What a gospel. And some of you are in here today, and you're just really beat up. And you live in a lot of guilt and a lot of hurt. And some of you are in here today and you are far from Christ. And you are chasing after the things of this world and finding that they do nothing for you. And if that's you today, I would encourage you to just come to the feet of the humble Jesus. The humble, quiet King who shunned the glories of this world and gave himself for you because he loves you. And he desires good for you and life for you. And some of us just need to hear that grace today and rest in it afresh. Some of us need our butts kicked because there is is an ethical side to this, that those who actually claim Christ and have received that grace are called to live as he lived. You know, Jesus said in the parable of the grains, right, as the gospel going out, that, that there will be a lot who hear the message, but the troubles of this world tangle and choke and they bear no fruit. Beloved, a seed does not bear fruit unless it dies. Some of us need to be challenged today by how much our hearts just really love the glory of this world. We need to reflect on what it means to actually have a cosmic perspective that says, cross now, crown later. Others first. Sacrifice first. Service first. Not me, but you. Some of us need to reflect on what that means to actually be a servant of Christ, to actually walk as he walked and live in his kingdom, his upside-down kingdom that shuns the glories and pleasures of this world for the sake of serving others. And honestly, a lot of us probably need to do both those things. (laughs) Sit in the grace afresh, be challenged by our own selfishness. So I'm going to encourage you to reflect on that. But I want to end with this. I want to end by giving you guys an image to kind of Kind of help fuel your thoughts, your reflections on this. Chris, if you want to come up, you can. I'm going to kind of end us with this. Kim and I finally gave up and bought a minivan. And that was giving up for (laughs) us. This is so dumb. But in our early 20s, early in our marriage, Kim and I actually had a moment where we came together, locked each other in the eyes and said, like, we will never buy a minivan, right? We're agreed on that. It doesn't matter what that means for us. It doesn't matter if we have to buy old, beat-up cars. doesn't matter if we have to drive separately. It doesn't matter. Like, we will not own a minivan. And we were like, yes, we were locked in on this. But if you know us, right now we're in the middle of the process of getting our foster license. And part of that process meant getting a bigger car. And we sat down and looked at our finances and realized, well, all we can afford is a minivan. <laughs> so minivan it is. And even though 25-year-old me is standing in deep judgment of me right now. What's amazing is, I don't care. I don't care not because I'm some awesome dude. Listen, it kills my soul a little bit. (laughs) I don't care because saying yes to Christ is so much more fulfilling, is so much sweeter than trying to hold on to what 25-year-old me thought was cool. Right? When you say it like that, you're like, oh yeah, okay, that's actually an easy decision. I say that because of this. Jesus, in this famous story, and I'm going to end this with this image, entered Jerusalem on a donkey. And a donkey is essentially the minivan of first-century Palestine. Now, listen, there is some prophetic significance in this, and he quotes Zechariah, and there's this whole thing about the king riding in in peace and all those different things, and that is true and beautiful and worth reflecting on. But for our purposes today, I want you to reflect on what the average person standing there with the palm branches would have known about donkeys. Here's what they would have known about donkeys. Rich people enter Jerusalem in coaches, carried by people or drawn by animals. Warriors and generals and strong men enter Jerusalem on war horses, covered in armor and ready to sprint and run. Wealthy merchants enter Jerusalem on camels, covered in decorations and laden with wares to sell. Poor people enter Jerusalem on Blue-collar workers, uneducated people, hicks from the country, and are Jerusalem on donkeys. The donkey is the minivan. <laughs> it's not the cool vehicle. It's not the vehicle of prestige. It's not the vehicle of glory and power. Uh, do you guys know what the beast is? And I want you to get this image. Can you put it up here on the screen for me? This is the president's limousine. It was, it, was, it was issued in 2018. Is this insane thing you should Google it? It costs like between two and four million dollars and we don't know because it's top secret what all's in it. And they make one of these a couple of these things like every ten years and they go back and forth between Lincolns and Cadillacs and they're so fancy, they're hermetically sealed, have like their own air filtration system, they have like four-inch bulletproof glass and military grade armor built into the body. This one has a refrigerator inside with the president's blood in it. Like literally. It's wild, right? These things are insane. This is what you expect the president to show up in. The beast, as it is known, has the best of every military armament in it. Literally, it's decked out like an on-the-field military vehicle. It has the technology of a SpaceX capsule in it. And on top of that, it's a Cadillac. Right? It is decked out with everything power and authority should have. If you were going to some rally to see the president, and I don't want to get political, so I'll just say pick your favorite president of the last 30 years. If you were going to a rally to hear that president speak. This is what you would expect him to roll up in. To step out of that vehicle in an $8,000 suit surrounded by a squadron of the most trained soldiers in the planet and to walk up and set up shop, right? Imagine if you were at that same rally and the president rolled up in a 1998 purple Dodge Grand Carrier. And he got out and he's wearing his pizza sauce, stained sweatpants. And he's like, let's do this thing. That's not how you expect the president to show up. You expect him to show up in his glory, in his authority, in his power. But we, beloved, worship the God, worship the Savior, follow after the Jesus who decided to ride into Jerusalem. Who drove them the money man Because he shuns the glory of this world. Because his perspective is eternal. Sit with Jesus. Reflect with him about what he might be telling you this morning. And we'll our time